Um, Just before we get into our message this morning, we're going to pray, but before we do that, uh, just want to announce, we are really excited. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we had a guest speaker come. Uh, You didn't know that we were in a process of actually wanting to hire Simon Peacock as our intern, our pastoral intern. He's going to be starting at Hillside uh, June 3rd, that's a couple weeks from today, and he's going to be serving in all kinds of ways, overseeing our small group ministry, uh, planning for our Alpha course that we're going to do early January next year, and uh, along with that, get involved in some of our youth ministry and also preaching occasionally on on Sunday mornings. So, wanted to let you know, we'll uh, have more information about Simon, but he's an English import, been in Canada just for a couple years uh, great guy, and uh, we're really looking forward to what God has in store having uh, Simon here with us uh, coming up very soon. Would you bow your heads with me, and let's, uh, let's just enter into a time, this time of the Word, inviting God by His Spirit to speak to us today. Lord, it's Pentecost Sunday, and we're so grateful that uh, as, as the church, as, as individuals, the, the, the people of Israel stumbled around trying to figure it out. Lord, you came up with a much better way, and that was you wanted to give them the gift of your spirits, fill them with your hearts. You'd write your law on their hearts, God. And we're so grateful that we give give thanks to you, Lord, for the spirit today. Uh, Lord, uh, that you lead us and guide us, that we don't have to stumble around in the dark. You, You give your spirit within us so that we can learn your ways and follow you. And we, this morning, want to again be in the school of the Spirit. We want to be empowered by you to live the lives you call us to. We're not meant to do it on our own. And so we pray, help us, Father, we pray. This week, even though uh, a wedding has been dominant, we think of other tragedies in our world. I think of the shooting at a school, uh, Lord, in the South. We think of this airline, that this airplane in in, uh, Cuba that crashed and the, the, the countless lives that have been impacted by that. We think of not too long ago where, uh, last weekend, where uh, three, church, uh, three churches had uh, suicide bombers uh, show up there in Indonesia. Think of our brothers and sisters there suffering. Send your comfort, send your help, Lord. Speak into those, those messes, Lord. Bring your, bring your aid, God, we pray. May the people of God ri- rise up around those and show the love of Jesus to them. In our own lives, God, we just uh, acknowledge our need of you. Uh, Lord, we don't have to go so far to the news to know of, of friends of ours who are suffering. I think of the, the five-year-old boy, part of this congregation, uh, little Zachary, who uh, this week has been, for, for the sixth day on, been struggling with a serious fever, and the doctors are perplexed, and we would pray for Zachary today. Would you, would you help Zachary this morning, God? Just, uh, Lord, Lord, would you relieve him of this? We don't know what the cause is. We pray your, your help would be upon Zachary. Others that we know, Lord, maybe it's, it's us sitting here this morning. We have something that we're facing, and we need your help. Help us, we pray. Step into our lives and show us your light. Show us your hope, we, we ask. And now as we turn to your word, Spirit of the living God, speak. We, your servants, are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I, I want you to think for a moment back to when you were in elementary school and you did something that all elementary school kids do in Canada. You bring home your class picture, right? You know, and you look back on those years, you see your class picture that you had from years ago, and you're wondering, 
What were we thinking wearing clothes like that? The fashion statements that were made. By the way, this is not my class picture. That was May of 57. I was not even a twinkle in my parents' minds at that point. But uh, I was thinking about class pictures as I was reading this story for, about this kid, uh, five-year-old Andrew who brought his kindergarten class picture home to his parents. And he began describing to his mom each of the classmates in his class. He said, this is Robert. He hits everyone. And then he says, this is Stephen. He never listens to teacher. And he says, this is Mark. He chases us and is very noisy in class. And then pointing to his own picture, Andrew says, and this is me. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. Uh, in a kindergarten class, uh, another one, a teacher was observing the children while they were drawing, and she was going around from student to student to see what, what they were working on. And as she got to one little girl who was working away, she asked what the, the drawing was, and the girl replied, I'm drawing God. And, and the teacher says, but no one knows what God looks like. And without missing a beat, this little girl replied, they will in a minute. Open your Bibles if you got one, and we have loaner Bibles uh, available at the back. Um, to Daniel chapter 4, we're in a series uh, in the book of, of Daniel, the Old Testament book, and today we're going to continue with the, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's deliverance from pride. And we learned, for those of you who were here last week, that God is resolutely opposed to pride. And it's not because God has a big ego. It's because God doesn't want to see people in misery. As, as C.S. Lewis says, pride is misery. And, and it's because he's anti-community, and he's anti, uh, because pride is anti-community, and pride is anti-love. And we learn that God is the humblest being in the universe, the Trinity and the, and the cross being the greatest expression of humility. We saw how God tried one approach with Nebuchadnezzar. He warned him through a dream, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite get the message, and so God goes to plan B. And this morning, we're going to talk about the two approaches that God uses when it comes to, to correcting a person, because he uses them not only with Nebuchadnezzar, but he uses them with, with you, and he uses them with me, and it, and it makes a huge difference what approach that we respond to. In the first plan, God tries to reason with Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, God always prefers to do this. There's this great statement that we find in Isaiah where God's people are being stubborn and defiant and rebellious, and, and they're just wayward, and God says to his people, he says, come, let us reason together. Let's be reasonable around this, he says. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing because God doesn't have to do that. He does not have to, to, to reason with stubborn, fallen people. He could Im impose his will. He could make it happen, but, but he does this this really incredibly generous thing of treating us like persons. And he honors our freedom, and he appeals to our minds, and he, he appeals to our wills so that we might choose what is right and what is good for our lives with an open spirit. Uh, one Old Testament scholar uh, who writes on Daniel says that this approach which God takes at first with Nebuchadnezzar is like the parable that Jesus told, the, the sower and the seed. Do you remember that, that parable? And, and Jesus says that the, the seed is God's words, God's thoughts. 
And, and he says the sower takes his seed and he scatters them everywhere, but then it really depends on the soil. It really depends on the condition of our hearts, what happens. Where our hearts are, are soft and open and, and, and deep and uncluttered, then the seed will bear fruit and, and there'll, be, there'll be growth. Where the, shallow, where the soil is, is shallow or hard or, or resistant or cluttered, the seed just does not have much of a chance. And the, the soil, the heart, closes itself off to God's gentle invitation to come and reason together. That's what happens in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. God's very clear about what Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn. Look at verse 17. This is when the dream first comes to Nebuchadnezzar and the dream is recited. And it says, the decision is announced by, by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and gives them over to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, in, in, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, in case he should miss the message, it's, it's repeated. And then in verse 25, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. He says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be driven away from people and you'll live like a wild animal. You'll eat grass like cattle and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is not a nice picture of what is in store for Nebuchadnezzar. And in case he hasn't got it, it's repeated again in verse 32. God, by the way, is, he's, he's not being subtle here with Nebuchadnezzar. For you students who are in studies right now and you're, you're, you're in, in exams and so forth, this is like an open book test. Nebuchadnezzar knows what's going to be on the final. God gives him this vivid dream. And then God gives him Daniel in order to explain the dream to him. Again, as we uh, pointed out in verse 20, uh, 20, verse last week, we pointed out verse 27, Daniel is just so brave here. And he urges the king with these words. He says, therefore, take my advice, O king. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, by doing justice. Renounce your wickedness by being kind, to, by showing mercy to the oppressed and to the poor. And then look at the last sentence. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. It may be. It depends. It, it all hangs on whether the soil, which is Nebuchadnezzar's heart, is open and receptive to the seed, to God's reasoning. If he'll receive the, the seed, if he'll let it take root and, and, and bear fruit, if he'll enter into what you might call the school of humility, it may be that all will be well for Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? How's Nebuchadnezzar doing with a humility deal? <laughs> not so great. Um, anyone remember the, the famous quarterback named Joe Namath? Anybody? <laughs> He, uh, he once wrote an autobiography with the title, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. <laughs> I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar went to the same school that Joe Namath went to. But God, God plants his seed, and then what does God do? He waits. How long does he wait? 
We're told 12 months, one, one year. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a, a whole year. He's so patient. And every day for that year, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. Every, every day he chooses to kind of shove this dream from his mind. Every, every day he says, I won't bend my knee to that God. I won't do justice like he asked. I, I, I won't be kind to the poor and to the oppressed. Not today. I'll keep on building my palaces and my walls and my gardens. I'll keep, keep doing with my money what I want to do with my money. Now, I wonder, maybe he thinks God's bluffing. Maybe, maybe he tells himself that one day he'll pay attention, that one day he will give God obedience, but not today. I, I wonder, did he, did he push the dream from his mind? I'll, I'll bet you that he actually ignored or avoided Daniel for that entire year, right? Until a year later where he had become a complete slave to his arrogance and to the self-centeredness that God had so warned him against. Therefore, God is going to have to go to plan B, and plan B is going to involve so much more pain for Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the thing, folks. If people choose to, or refuse, I should say, to listen to God without pain, he'll use pain if he has to. It's never his first choice. Never. But he'll use it. It's really up to the person. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only example of this. It's quite, quite a clear pattern in Scripture. Think, uh, think Jonah. Remember Jonah? You know, Jonah... God plants a seed in Jonah. God speaks to Jonah to, to go to Nineveh and preach there, asking the people to repent. And, and Jonah resists. He, he hardens his heart, and he gets on a boat, and he goes about as far from Nineveh as he can go. goes the opposite direction. So God goes to plan B, and he sends a storm. And then Jonah gets that's thrown overboard, and, and then he gets swallowed by a great big fish. By the way, a great big fish is a, is a fantastic attention-getting device. If you get swallowed by a big fish, that gets your attention, I think. That's plan B. What about Pharaoh? God, uh, God sends Moses to reason with Pharaoh with God's message, let my people go. And Pharaoh basically is a textbook example of resisting God. He says no at every turn, so eventually God goes to plan B. What, is, what does God do to Pharaoh? How, what, what does that involve? Well, we're talking gnats and frogs and flies and, 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 and grasshoppers. Basically, we're talking about July in Manitoba or, or Bellacula, maybe. And Pharaoh never did submit to God right to the very end. He kept on resisting until his army was destroyed in the Red Sea. I want to pause here for a moment because I wonder what seed is God seeking to sow in you right now? In what ways has God been, been seeking to get your attention? In what way has he been saying to you, come, let us reason together? He does this in, in such a gentle way. What, what might it look like? Maybe like this, I, I read about a man who, who struggled with al, uh, workaholic, workaholism and he was kind of dying inside. It was kind of shriv his heart was just kind of shriveling up. And, and he called his son late one night, and he said, I, I'm not going to be home tonight to tuck you in. And this was like the, the fifth night in a row that he hadn't been home to, to be with his boy. 
And his son says, wake me up when you get home. And his dad says, no, it, it, it'll be late. And his son, his son said, he says, dad, when, wake me up no matter what because I just want to know you're, you're here. I just want to know you're home. And the, and the dad wrote this. He says, to this day, I can't precisely explain what happened to me at that moment, but suddenly I knew I had to leave my job. It was just a word, just a word from his boy. And God has been speaking to some of you, maybe through an uneasy conscience. It's been kind of like a, a red light flashing on the dashboard of your soul. Some of you, your friend, like Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, a friend has been trying to speak to you about something in your life. And for whatever reason, you've been able to just kind of blow it off. For some of you, there's some area in your life where you're not letting God be God. You know, it could be that there's a pattern of deceit in your life, or it could be a, a pattern of, of sexual misbehavior, or, or it could be involving a, a lack of concern for the poor, or, or, or the way that you treat your money. Occasionally, you come to church and, and you hear a message that has to do with something like this, and you know you ought to come clean, you know you ought to turn around, you know that you, you ought to get help, you know that you're defying God, and you've been doing this kind of day after day, and maybe week after week, maybe even year after year, and you find that if you just get busy enough, if you get distracted enough, then the feeling goes away. So I want to encourage you, when God wants to reason with you, when he comes into your life in gentleness with that still small voice saying, come, let us reason together. Don't ignore him. It is foolish to fool with God. <laughs> Maybe we think he's bluffing. He, he's not bluffing. Maybe you've, you've been saying to yourself, someday I'll get around to giving God my obedience. Listen to, to what Psalm 32 verses 8 and 9 says about these two approaches. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. That's plan A. That's, uh, I'll instruct you. I'll, I'll teach you. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, do not be like the horse or the mule, which needs to be controlled by bit and by bridle, by pressure and by pain. That's, that's plan B. Don't be that way, says God. I don't want to treat you that way, and, and you don't want to go there. But people do. And, and, and I think God's been saying to some of us, come, let us reason together. And, and we've been saying no. And I want to urge you this morning to listen to what God has been saying and to respond. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. In spite of how gracious God has been to him, God has sent him a dream. God has sent him Daniel. He's given him a year. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, not, not today, not me. So God goes to plan B. And plan B involves him in more drastic measures. This is going to hurt. He sends Nebuchadnezzar on a, what you might call an involuntary sabbatical. You know, I, I prefer voluntary sabbaticals, by the way. I think they're much better. But he's going to lose his throne. He's going to lose his wealth. He's going he's to lose his, his sanity. And God is going to have to use some pressure and, and some molding in order to reshape Nebuchadnezzar's character. Now, here's, here's where I find it interesting. It's not that, that God is just going to plan B with Nebuchadnezzar. The, it, the larger context of the book of Daniel is God going to plan B with the people of Israel. There's this uh, great passage in, Daniel, uh, in pardon me, Jeremiah 18. 
that was written precisely in Daniel's day. And Israel, they'd been disobedient, rebellious, and, and, and not following God's ways. They refused to, refused to reason with God. God had sent piles of prophets to, to get their attention, and they just ignored them. And, and, and their exile in Babylon was one way that God was using to try and get their attention. And the image here in this passage is a potter that is working with some clay. This is what, how the passage reads. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message, O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand. This is kind of the classic passage of God taking this approach of being the potter and his people being the clay. Now, uh, when it comes to doing pottery, I like to think that I have some expertise. Uh, my family knows that uh, on vacations, I pull over for pottery shops. I, I, I'm, I've been on a quest, a lifelong quest for finding the perfect mug. And uh, so we stop at every pottery shop and there are a lot of them when you go on vacation. It turns out they have one everywhere, which is awesome for me, not so much for my family. I also think I have some, some natural skill. You see, uh, any, anyone uh, play lots of family games? So those of you who have kids, you, is that part of your experience? So uh, it turns out that I'm really not very good at charades or Pictionary. In fact, when I draw a picture, on the, uh, I'll draw whatever I think it is. It'll be like a squiggly line, and then I just point to it for the rest of the time that I have. If I point more emphatically, I think they'll finally get it, and, and that doesn't seem to help. But where I think I really shine from my own personal opinion is when we play cranium, and when, when I get to be the sculptor, you know, they give you this little tub of Play-Doh, and I get to draw, you do that? I mean, I, I think I'm the, the family, I for sure I'm the family, stop shaking your head. We're going to have a playoff after the game. Anybody got some Play-Doh? We need, we need to actually prove this here and now. Uh, I think we need to know. That's what you're asking. But um, I also remember when I was in grade two, we actually did some actual pottery. And uh, I, being the sensitive child that I was, I decided to make my parents an ashtray. You know? <laughs> they didn't smoke. They didn't approve of smoking. But I thought they needed an ashtray. And so, you know, you, you, you form this thing. And, uh, kids, by the way, I don't think they do that now. Like, if you did an ashtray to now, the teacher wouldn't let you take it home, I don't think. Chuck it in the garbage right there. But, you know, I formed this thing. I glazed this thing, put it in a kiln, and I brought this misshapen, whatever you want to call it, home to my parents, where they somehow nodded and smiled and received it with joy. I think they probably threw it out as soon as I was away from home. That's my guess. But in this text in Jeremiah, it's talking about God, the, the idea of a, a potter working on something that doesn't turn out right. And a professional potter, what do they do when, when something goes wrong, when it doesn't turn out right? They, they wedge it. It's, it's a process called wedging, and they basically take the item that they've been molding on the wheel, and they take it and they slam it on the wheel, and they begin working on it and reworking it until it's, it's usable again. That's what they do. And some of you understand this dynamic because you do this kind of thing with, with human clay. Those of you who work with kids, right? You know, a good parent, when you think about it, always prefers 
to reason with a child. Uh, you know, you always prefer plan A, you know, because both it's gentler and because it's, it's a better option for the child to do willingly what is good and right for them to do, right? But let me ask you this. Does an appeal to reason always work with a three-year-old? Or how about a 15-year-old? Does it always work with a 15-year-old? I, I, not, not often, right? That's why, why parents need things like timeout chairs and, uh, and tranquilizers and, uh, you know, grounding privileges and all those kind of things, right? Uh, when our boys were young, we were trying to figure out what discipline worked for them. You know what we used? What we found worked with our boys was actually writing lines. And uh, so say one son would hit the other son we'd make them write out a chapter of the Bible. In fact, I think they pretty much covered all the Bible over their, their years. But uh, we'd, we'd pick a chapter like in, in Proverbs that was about God hating violence. We'd make them write that out. And uh, surprisingly, they still like Scripture. I think they could have learned to dislike Scripture. I don't know, these things could backfire on you, couldn't they? As a Christian parent, you know, you have to read the Bible. Anyway, a truly loving parent knows that sometimes you've got to go to plan B. Sometimes there's got to be this kind of pressure that you bring to bear. You know, you, they're going to have to experience that reshaping on the wheel. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says. And, and I, I've always found this scripture to be a comfort to me when I've been going through difficulty. And maybe it will be to you, surprisingly, actually. My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a child. For what children are not disciplined by their parents? You see, discipline, this, this molding process isn't always pleasant. It's not for the clay, and it certainly isn't always for the potter, but it is sometimes necessary. Journalist uh, David Berry was, was once he wrote an article on parenthood, and he said, people ask me, what is the essence of parenthood? He says, I always answer, lowering your standards. <laughs> and I get that. Because in an attempt to mold and shape a human being's life, it's hard work. It's much easier to say, let it slide. You know, let their character go. Let their potential go. You know, let... Let bad habits go unchecked, you know? Lower your standards. I think, I think it's true for the potter. You, you know, if a clay, if a piece of clay had feelings, what might it say when it found that it hasn't, hadn't measured up and it was going to go back on the wheel to be reshaped? Can you, can you imagine it saying to the potter, hey, could you just lower your standards? <laughs> could you just allow for a few flaws and imperfections? And you know what, folks, if the pot doesn't matter, if it's just an ashtray made with plaster seam, uh, then okay. But, but if it matters, if it is going to be a, a work of art in the hands of a master craftsman, it's going to need to be reshaped and remolded. Some of us are in the, on the wheel right now, and it hurts. You're tempted to make this prayer, that your prayer, God, couldn't you just lower your standards with me? Couldn't you just let this whole pride deal go? I mean, couldn't you, you let my, my character go unchanged or these habits that I have that are 
killing me. Couldn't you let them go uncorrected? Let me say this. You're in the hands of someone who, who loves you more than you can know, which means you can trust him. And I, I would say you can even pray this kind of bold, audacious prayer. Because God is good and because of his love, you can actually say, Lord, shape me, mold me, make me into who you want me to be. You can trust God with your life, but don't ask him to lower his standards. A great father would never do that. A, a great artist would never do that because the art matters too much. And that's the, really the lesson of the potter and the clay. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's going to go on the potter's wheel. This is plan B for him. He resisted plan A, so he's headed to the wheel. We're told that one day he was on the rooftop of his palace, and he was looking over his city, and he says, this is the great Babylon that I have built by my might and for my glory. And look at verse 31. The words were still on his lips. And God here is making sure that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar here connects the dots. He's, he's then humbled by God. All that, that was going to happen, happens. And I got to say, most of us have had, had some kind of experience along the line of being humbled right? All of us, I think. And it's painful, but it has a way of, of putting things in perspective. Some of you would remember who uh, Matt Redman is. He, he was a great music leader, great worship leader, great writer. Uh, but early in his career, he was singing with his church's praise band, and his pastor actually confronted the band. He sensed they'd become proud of their music and proud of their sound and proud of their, their worship leading. And in the process, they were neglecting true worship. And quite radically, the, the pastor actually canceled the music part of their services. And, and the band were, were so insulted by this that they left the church, all except for Matt Redman. And it was shortly after this, this humbling experience that, that he wrote the song called The Heart of Worship, which included the lines... You know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, where it's all about you, where it's all about you, Jesus. And most of, it, most of us had that kind of experience of being humbled uh, by God, and it gives us a perspective on who we are. It's painful, but it's good. And this happens to Nebuchadnezzar. A, a voice comes from heaven in verse 31, and it says, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live like wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers, of an eagle and his nails like claws of a bird. Yeah, he was ugly. But think about it. He's, this guy has gone from being the most powerful, maybe impressive leader on the planet to being the most ridiculed and, and humiliated creature on the face of the earth. That's how far this guy's fallen. He had maybe the, the greatest palace in history. And now the guy's, guy's homeless. You know, he's doing field studies, right? He's, he's living outside day after day. He's on the wheel week after week, month after month. How long does it go on? 
Well, it says seven times. How long is seven times? I think it's a code word for as long as it takes. As long as it takes for, for Nebuchadnezzar to kind of come to his senses, to, to wake up, to, for him to, to walk in, in the shoes of the weak and the poor, until it comes to dawn on him that, that what he thought that came as a result of his might and his power was really a gift, a gift from God, and he would be accountable to, to God for that gift. And he had to learn about the one thing that God was looking for in his heart, and it was the last thing that he ever expected. Look, at, look back at verse 17. You might have noticed this. It says, The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on, on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now look at this. And sets over them the lowliest of people. The sovereign, this most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth, gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest people. What does that mean, lowliest of people? Not necessarily those with the dullest IQs. It's, it's what Jesus was talking about when he said, if anyone wants to be great, be a servant. If anyone wants to be the greatest, be a servant to everyone. It's the law of the kingdom. Greatness in God's kingdom is, is defined by servanthood. It's that, that miracle of, of Easter where, where the lowly carpenter from Nazareth humbled himself to the point of death. The lowliest of men who, who would become the name at which every knee would bow. Nebuchadnezzar's going to have to go on the wheel until he learns that, uh, about life in the kingdom. And I'll tell you the turning point for it. And it's the turning point for anyone who happens to be on the wheel. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Now, he's not just saying I glanced upward towards the sky. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is confessing here that he was wrapped up entirely in himself and his, in his agenda and his own glory. And finally, after all that time on the wheel, <laughs> as long as it took to understand the nature of the kingdom and, and his place within God's kingdom, he raised his eyes towards heaven. Of course, that's what God was waiting for. I, I find it quite ironic that, that, that when Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world, when he was ruler, really, of the entire planet, God was not impressed at all. But, but now he's despised and humbled, and he's, he's broken, he's homeless, he's insane, and he raises his eyes toward heaven, and he, he finds a father who loves him, and who's, who's been waiting all this time for his son to come home. Maybe you're on the potting wheel today, if you're honest. Maybe you've messed up in some way in your life real bad, maybe for a long time, and you've been kind of paying a price. Maybe you've been wrestling with a bad attitude, a wrong attitude, and it's been kind of choking off your heart and keeping you kind of distant from God. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you've really hurt another person. You've really damaged a relationship, and, and you're kind of experiencing brokenness as a result of that. Maybe the truth is, is, is you're building your own kingdom. And it might be to do with your job or, or with your future or with your finances. It might even be to, to do with your family. But the truth is you've, you've really been, been building your own little Babylon and 
and now it's kind of falling apart. Maybe you don't even know why. Maybe you haven't done anything wrong and, and still you're experiencing pain because that happens too. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what the reasons are, but whenever you hit bottom, look up to the heavens. Look up. Raise your eyes towards heaven. Your last, best, and only hope is, is that we have a God who loves us and he'll use even this time in your life. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he looks up, his sanity is restored, and as I mentioned last week, his first response is to praise God. He said, I, I raised my eyes towards heaven, my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified him who lives forever. Get this. I think it's so informative to us. He doesn't say at this point, I can't believe all the years I've wasted. This, this whole era of my life, which he'll never get back, it's gone. But, but they're, interesting, there, there's no expression of regret or despair. Just worship and praise and joy. Why? I, I think because he gets it. He now understands that nothing is wasted in the hands of the Father. Nothing. Not a moment. Not a year. So if you've been on the wheel for a while, and if you're ready to submit, if you're ready to say, God, I, I put my life in your hands. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready to do that, God. Then, then all those years or months or however long it's been, which, which might look like from the outside a total loss, might just be the greatest gift you've ever been given. And so not a loss because nothing is wasted in the hands of, of a master potter like God. Now, there's another striking thing about this text to me. Nebuchadnezzar, this, this powerful leader, has been dethroned, de de disgraced, and humiliated. I mean, it's been pretty bad. I, what, what is described of how he was, and I, I wonder if that happened to me, I, I think I wouldn't want people to know about it. I, I, I'd keep it pretty quiet. But with Nebuchadnezzar, there's no cover-up. What does he do? He actually writes down, he writes the whole story down and has it broadcast to the four corners of his kingdom. He wants everybody to know there's no hint of embarrassment because it doesn't matter anymore what people think about him. He's finally got the humility message that it only matters what he thinks of him. That, that God's got to be the most important being in his life, not him. It's unbelievable. And, and the other thing is, is he's come to believe that all I want is, is for my people to know this God and for them to know about God's kingdom. He's discovered really what people who enter into God's kingdom community always discover. What Paul would write about later when he says, we, we as followers of Christ, we have this treasure. We have this treasure of God's love and, 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 and the gospel in jars of clay. We're, we're, we're flawed vessels, every single one of us. Uh, we're cracked pots, you might say. You, you could look at the person next to you, and you, you could say you're a crackpot. And I'm not sure that's how it went. You're, you're so cracked. No, that doesn't work either. You're on pot. No, that's not good. Um, we're cracked pots. We're flawed vessels. But actually, if you were to look at your neighbor and see what God might see, instead of just the flaws and the brokenness, you might actually see a lump of clay that put in the hands of the Father would be molded into something 
unbelievably beautiful that would bring honor and praise and glory to God, made in his image. We're going to conclude with a song, and we're going to conclude with some time of of prayer. So, team, come on up. Would you bow your heads with me? I wonder this morning... Has there been an area where God has been saying to you, come, let us reason together? Has has God been doing that at all in your life? Remember the story of, of somebody who heard the parable of the sower for the first time, and they said, I want to be the good soil. I want to be the good soil. Make me the good soil. And I know that's some of your heart this morning. You just, you want to be open. And so just in this, in this moment here, if there's an area that God has been, in, in, a, in a gentle way, been confronting you or urging you, be open to that this morning. Have a conversation. Reason with the Lord over it. Give you a few moments to do that. For some of you, maybe it feels like right now, it seems like God has been far more drastic with you, and he's taken serious measures to get your attention. In what way have you been put on the wheel right now, and God's trying to to reshape? It it could be with some area of, of, of disobedience, some area where you're trying to hold on to control. Could be that, uh, You stubbornly don't want to do what he wants you to do. You don't want to do the right thing that he's calling you to. I'd, I'd suggest that this morning is a good time to turn your eyes towards the heavens and to cry out to God. And as I said before, God's not impressed by our strength. He's impressed by our, our vulnerability and our honesty that we can come clean with him And he's been waiting like a father to embrace us and to draw us into his life and wholeness. But he won't let you go down the self-destructive path forever. He'll only let you be there for a time. And so if you're heading that direction, today's a good day to to stop and, 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 and turn and heed what he's saying. God, whatever, whatever you've been speaking to each of us this morning, help us respond to your correction, Lord. Uh, you told us, you were so clear about this, Lord, that you only discipline those you love. <laughs> you only discipline those you truly care about. Discipline is a gift, and I, I pray that as you Uh, work with each one of us where we're at. I pray, God, you'd grow us up 
into who you've called us to be, into that masterpiece, that work of art that uh, will reflect your glory and your image. Do that in us. Lord, uh, forgive us for asking you to just let stuff slide, to lower your standards in our life. God, you know better. We trust you. Mold us and shape us into who you want us to be. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.